Picture this. You're 19 years old. It's a summer afternoon, and you're driving around your hometown. You notice on the side of the road a group of other teenagers. As you get closer, you realize that two of them are your cousin and nephew. You can tell by body language that things are getting heated. Tempers are flaring. It looks like there's about to be a fight between your family and the other boys. So you pull over. You get out of your car, you step in between them, and you try to break it up. You put your hand on another kid's arm. Oh, and I should mention, you are black. And the kid you just touched on the arm is white. Also, it's 1966, and you live in Louisiana. So you get arrested and charged with simple battery. A misdemeanor. Not great, but not so bad, right? Well, in 1960s Louisiana, this means you won't get a jury trial. Instead, your case is going to be decided by a single judge. And that judge just happens to be a staunch white supremacist. And for the crime of alleged simple battery, you could go to jail for two years. This is the story of Gary Duncan, the man at the center of a case that eventually wound up in the Supreme Court. Untextbook producer Elliot Smith became interested in Gary Duncan's case while studying the civil rights movement. Growing up, I often learned about the civil rights movement as a series of protests and boycotts led by people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. And it is all of that. But there was also so many fights that were led by ordinary people in less public roles. Right now, with the Black Lives Matter protests happening across the country, I feel like so many people are looking at racial inequality in our country and they're asking, what can I do? And that's something I was asking myself. What can we do? And the answer is, I'm not sure. But I think that looking at history can help us find examples. And one of those examples is the story of Gary Duncan and his lawyer, Richard Sobel. He was just an ordinary 19-year-old, but he knew that the way that the criminal justice system was used to threaten and silence Black people in the South was not right. And together with his lawyer, they stood up to that inequality and that oppression, and they brought it all the way to Supreme Court. On this episode of On Textbook, Elliot interviews Matthew Van Meter about his book, Deep Delta Justice. Together, they talk about one lawsuit that changed the criminal justice system in America. I'm Gabe Hostin, and you're listening to Untextbook. Untextbooked. Okay. I'm so happy and excited that you could be here. I, I really loved reading your book, Deep Delta Justice. Yeah, thank you. You know, it was really interesting when I heard about it. Um, it's kind of a story that not many people know about, but it's really so interesting. And the more I read, the more, you know, I really felt how significant it was. Um, and a little bit more about Gary Duncan. He starts this book. He has, he pulls over to the side of the road um, to pick up his cousins. Could you share that, that story? So the, the incident at the center of the book is this really minor thing that happened, uh, or ostensibly minor thing that happened. So fall of 1966, the schools have just been desegregated, finally, 12 years after Brown versus Board of Education. 
And so there's all this tension in the community. I mean, there had been tension before, but it's it's come out to to the surface. And sort of against that background, Gary Duncan, who was 19 years old and a shrimper and tugboat captain, was driving down the road, the one road in Plaquemines Parish, and he saw um, his nephew and his cousin about to get jumped by these four white kids who were their classmates. And everybody involved in this incident was a teenager. The boys were about 14 and, and Gary was 19. And Gary got out of his car and sort of broke up the fight that was about to happen. And as he was breaking up the fight, he put his hand on the shoulder of or the arm of one of the white kids. And that moment when his hand came into contact with that kid's arm started this odyssey to the Supreme Court. Gary was arrested. He was charged first with cruelty to juveniles, and then that charge was thrown out, and he was arrested for, for battery. But it, all, all misdemeanors, these are all considered minor crimes. But the injustice of it was was the point. And Gary, rather than sort of lying down and taking it like he was supposed to, lawyered up and you know began this odyssey to the Supreme Court. And where this is taking place in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana, there was a lot of racism. You know, there was a lot of people working against integration. So could you tell us a little bit about what growing up there was like as a black person or anyone in the community? Yeah, and I should say I, I don't, for all sorts of reasons, have firsthand knowledge of that, um, you know, not least because of the color of my skin and where I'm from. And because of that, I did a lot of interviews of folks in the community, black and white, um, who grew up there at the time and and, and since. Um, the thing that was really important about Plaquemines Parish vis-a-vis -vis race is that on the one hand, the interpersonal aspect of it was often not as uh, sort of egregiously bad as it was in, in, in much of the rest of the country. In Plaquemines Parish, unusually for the Deep South, um, black and white communities were pretty mixed, especially down where Gary Duncan was from. Um, there's all sorts of reasons for that that don't have time to go into, but they, they, people tended to own their own land and homes and cars, which is unusual for the Deep South. And, and they tended to live sort of cheek by jowl with, with their white neighbors. And so on the one hand, person to person interactions between blacks and whites were not as fraught often as they were in, in the rest of the country, including the urban North. It was segregated. It was the Deep South. So there were, you know, black bathrooms and white bathrooms and water fountains and all of that stuff. In that sense, it was very much like the rest of the Deep South. And that was sort of being phased out at the time. But the, th the thing you have to understand, it was, it was ruled as a dictatorship by this man named Leander Perez. And Perez was really staunch white supremacist and one of the one of the architects of what we now call Jim Crow, one of the real innovators of Jim Crow. So so in Plaquemines, the, the, the problem was it was really hard to get uh, civil rights attorneys to go down there. And this is in part because Leander Perez controlled, had such tight control over the legal system uh, in Plaquemines that there was this understanding that it's not you, it's not like you get, you know, chased down the road by a bunch of, uh, you know, bozos with guns hanging out of the car or anything like that like you what what would happen is you'd get you get drugs planted on you or or you you get arrested in the courthouse phone booth for practicing law without a license or it was through this court system that 
intimidation and white supremacy were were maintained in Plaquemines Parish, which is a much scarier thing in a lot of ways than the the sort of um, you know Mississippi burning sort of pho- photogenic what we think of when we think of white supremacy um, uh, method of of intimidation because because it has this veneer of legality to it. But uh, but at the same time, structurally, politically, it was one of the worst places in in the country, if not the world, for race relations because of Perez and because he controlled the levers of power, and that was what really mattered. And it was it was one of the places where it was hardest to register to vote. One of the places where it was most understood that there will be retaliation against you within the legal system if you challenge the authority of of Leander Perez or whoever the authority figures were. I was struck at by how much, on a political level, Leander Perez and other people in the government could exert influence over you know the everyday actions, and especially Gary Duncan. But he got a lawyer, Richard Sobel, and started to fight against that. And Richard Sobel was from the North, but he was in Louisiana to provide civil rights help. And I was wondering if you could talk about the role that lawyers had in the civil rights movement, because it's not the first thing that pops to many people's minds when they think of the civil rights movement. Yeah, one of the things I was trying to do with the book, and thank you for the question, because I don't think about lawyers when I think about the civil rights movement either. Or if I do, I think about lawyers like Thurgood Marshall, uh, who was on the Supreme Court by this time. And I don't think so much about what what actually should have been perfectly obvious to me if I'd thought about it, which is that, you know, so so Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954, right, which desegregated or told U.S. public schools that they needed to desegregate. Uh, but there was no enforcement authority, right? The Supreme Court doesn't have a police force to go and, 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 and make schools do that. So they just ignored it. And so it wasn't until 10 years later, the Civil Rights Act was passed that where Congress gave the Department of Justice the authority to enforce that law. It took 10 years. Right. And then the South continued to ignore the the mandates of the Civil Rights Act and Brown versus Board of Education. And so so you need an army of lawyers to go and there needed to be a, a there needed to be a lawsuit in every single school district in the South. It was painstaking work. You need thousands and thousands of lawsuits. And they, on, the, on the one hand, they were all pretty similar, but each school district had its own list of delay tactics and, and stop gaps and fail safes and ways of keeping the federal government at bay. They were, they were looking to wait the civil rights movement out, uh, and it nearly worked. And I think that's something I, I wasn't aware of when I was growing up with a fairly simplistic view of the civil rights movement. And that's just the schools. And we're talking public accommodations of all sorts. There needed to be a separate lawsuit filed for every single recalcitrant business and municipality and public library and pool. And, and you would, the list goes on and on. And somebody had to do that work. These cases don't fight themselves. Even if they're winners, these cases don't fight themselves. And so, so Richard Sobel was one of a whole bunch of lawyers who went down and the work does this is not like high paying you know sexy work a lot it's just a grind uh and and we are really lucky as a country that so many lawyers so successfully chose to do that and head down into the south especially because law schools in the deep south had just desegregated uh were, were in the process of desegregating in the early 60s so you didn't have 
like now and starting in the 70s, really, you had a bunch of local black lawyers who were who had taken bar exams in the South who were able to file those cases. But until the early 70s, you didn't have enough of them because the school, the law schools had not been desegregated. And so you needed hundreds and hundreds of lawyers to come from the North to defend people who were protesting and to file these affirmative suits to desegregate schools and public accommodations. And so, so it was an immensely important part of the civil rights movement, both strategically and in, and in terms of actual effect. There's so much, uh, so many of the gains and the big victories of the civil rights movement would have been for nothing had those lawyers not gone south and filed those suits. And Richard took on all these different cases, but Gary's was very important. It centered around the right to a jury trial. Could you explain, you know, for people who might not have an in-depth understanding of the law, why couldn't Gary have a jury and how did this get to the Supreme Court? So, so this is what is generally called by lay people and prosecutors a, a, a technicality. Right. So the, the, the Supreme Court case had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with Leander Perez. It had nothing to do with Gary Duncan's guilt or innocence. It had to do with a constitutional violation that Richard argued the state of Louisiana was guilty of, that essentially that the state of Louisiana, because battery was punishable by up to two years in prison, needed to give Gary Duncan a jury trial because the U.S. Constitution required it. So... So to get into the weeds a little bit, Gary was not given a jury trial because he was accused of a, a of what's called a misdemeanor. And so there are misdemeanors and there are felonies. Felonies are higher order crimes usually. And those activate your right to a jury trial. But the thing is that there was no standardization at the time between states of what counted as a felony and what counted as a misdemeanor. And so Richard decided to make this very ambitious argument saying that this junkie misdemeanor trial was in fact a violation of the United States Constitution, not because of anything that Gary Duncan did or didn't do, but because the state of Louisiana was in violation of the U.S. Constitution and had been from its inception. Because at the time, the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights was held to only apply to the federal government and not to the states. Beginning in the 20s, the Supreme Court started applying the the Bill of Rights, sort of clause by clause to the states. And Duncan versus Louisiana is part of that tradition. I want to talk a little bit about some of the roadblocks he faced on the path to the Supreme Court. One of those being bail. There's this scene where Gary's in jail and his family members are trying to pay bail. And they run into obstacle after obstacle trying to pay it, where it just can't work. So why was it that people in Louisiana who were part of the court could create all these roadblocks which interfere with Gary's ability to have justice? The thing about courts is that, and the thing about the law, is that they operate according to the whims of the people who control their levers. Um, so take bail. Right. Ostensibly, bail is an amount of money that you pay to the court that's held in escrow that is meant to encourage you to come back. You show up for your court date, you get your money back, right? So deposit, essentially, keep you from running away. That's how it was uh, intended, I suppose, to function. Um, 
in real life, bail is often punitive. That is, it's used to punish people um, or, or to make a statement, a political statement or some other sort of statement. Um, high bail is seen as um, make, making some seen as a type of speech, right? It's saying this, this is really bad or this person is really dangerous or whatever, um, which, which may or may not correspond to the person or their, their crime or their actual ability to abscond. And so within that context, uh, it is not at all surprising and should not be at all surprising to anyone who's familiar with the way that the American justice system worked and works that bail was very difficult for Gary Duncan's family to post. And that's because the person who was there to receive the bail did not want to release Gary Duncan. And that's the only reason. Um, and that's not a Louisiana thing. Uh, and that's not a 1960s thing. Uh, that happens all over the place today in every municipality in this country to some extent, because that's the justice system we've built for ourselves. It shows the way in which people in the justice system who are looking to make some sort of point about a criminal defendant, whatever point that might be, have all of these levers of power that you haven't even thought about. We talk a lot about the power of prosecutors and the power of police. We don't talk a lot about the power of, of bail bondsmen or of wardens, you know, or, or, or other people in the court system. All of these points of contact and, you know, Gary's case is great for demonstrating that because at basically every point of contact possible for his case, he ran into some sort of roadblock and he was able to overcome it. But there's nothing quaint or like old fashioned about what happened to him. This stuff happens all the time, all over America. And, you know, getting railroaded because somebody doesn't want to let you out on bail is a pretty common experience, particularly for people of color in this country. How did this ruling at the Supreme Court end up impacting people in Louisiana and across the South? Yeah. So, I mean, so there are a couple of uh, levels of that. So the on the first level, on just sort of a human level, uh, it was a vindication for Gary, overturned his conviction, sent it back to the lower court and said he needed a jury trial. Um, on the other hand, this is a landmark constitutional law decision. Um, and not a lot changed overnight, which is part of why this case is not as famous as, you know, like Roe versus Wade or, or Miranda versus Arizona, some of the, the, the really famous Supreme Court cases. Because every state did offer jury trials, there were a bunch of states that had to scramble to uh, to offer jury trials that were would come in line with the U.S. Constitution. But for the most part, like the U.S. justice system was not upended. What Duncan versus Louisiana, which is the name of Gary's case, did that was really important was it laid the foundation and laid the groundwork for, by saying that the right to a trial by jury in every court. Uh, every criminal court in the United States, no matter what jurisdiction, was fundamental to the American system of justice. It allowed the Supreme Court then to go on and make subsequent decisions that were answering questions about what do we mean when we say jury? So there are all of these cases for the la over the last 50 years that are about how many people is a jury? Does a jury need to reach a unanimous decision? If a jury is a cross-section of a community, what does the cross-section look like? Like, how skewed can it be and in what ways? Are you allowed to discriminate when choosing juries based on race or gender or religion or occupation or anything else? And it's the basis of a number of other really important cases having to do with whether 
you can sentence somebody based on facts that a jury hasn't found, which is sort of a technicality, but has influenced, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of prosecutions. And so there are all of these kind of legal technicalities that stem from Duncan that are not important until you've been accused of a crime and then they are vital. <laughs> and, and and Duncan is the basis for all of that. And it's ongoing. You know, just this spring, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case, Ramos versus Louisiana, that finally answered the question of whether juries need to reach unanimous verdicts because Oregon and Louisiana uh, did not require that juries reach a unanimous decision. The only two jurisdictions since the Magna Carta in history to allow that. And the Supreme Court finally, this this past spring, said, no, in fact, when we say jury, we mean a group of people who reaches a unanimous decision. And so Duncan is the basis for all of that. And without Duncan, none of it would happen because that part of the U.S. Constitution wouldn't apply to the states in the first place. But one of the things that's really important to me uh, and, and is important to remember is that nothing that happened to Gary Duncan was particular to the Jim Crow South. He was not uh, he was not accused of breaking some segregationist law. He was not an activist. Uh, he was accused of simple battery, which is still a crime in every state. Um, race was not mentioned at his trial, except, you know, kind of in passing. It was not mentioned in the Supreme Court opinion, except kind of in passing at the beginning in, in what's called dicta at the beginning. And in that sense, this is not a story about the 60s at all. It's not a story about the civil rights movement. It's not a story about Jim Crow. All of those things, of course, are underlying because race is underlying all of this. And anybody who looks at this story knows that. But legally, it had nothing to do with that. And that's the exact situation in every jurisdiction in this country right now. There are people right now, right this second, who are in jail for battery who would not be there but for the color of their skin. And so in that sense, it hasn't changed, um, particularly now that the jury trials are so rare. You know, one of the ironies of this case is that even though it laid the, laid the foundation for one of the most important protections that a criminal defendant has, one of the most fundamental protections that a criminal defendant has, jury trials have all but disappeared from the American system of justice. You know, something like 97, 98% of criminal trials end in a, end in a guilty plea. Uh, and the, the, the few percent that make it to trial, uh, you know, about half of them are heard by a judge and the other half are heard by a jury. That's, you know, what kind of fundamental right is exercised by like three to 1.5% of the people who, uh, who could avail themselves of it. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, having to do with mass incarceration, having to do with the increasing power of prosecutors with mandatory minimum sentences and, and with sentencing guidelines and all of that stuff, right? The proliferation of tools in prosecutors' toolkits to bully people into pleading guilty. Um, because the thing of it is, we can barely afford to prosecute all of the people we're prosecuting now. And if they all asked for a jury trial, the system would fall apart. We're kind of getting towards the end. So I was wondering if there's anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about. Yeah, just I think just one thing, and it's it's sort of a subplot in the in the story. But, you know, I th so Richard Sobel passed away in March of this year. Um, and I was, I was fortunate enough to spend some time with with him and Gary um, back in January. And 
One of the things that I think is important about Richard is he went on to do equal employment law um, and really become one of the earliest, if not the earliest, people to successfully litigate under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is very much in the news now because of Supreme Court cases on race and gender in the workplace. And I, I think I went into this story initially thinking that once the civil rights movement kind of you know, was blown up, blew itself up, you know, it was, it, it was a complicated series of factors in the late 60s that led to um, the kind of backlash against the movement that, that those lawyers all kind of went home or went to their corporate law firms or, or gave up or whatever. And that's not at all the case. You know, they went on and they, they moved into, you know, equal employment law for the most part and ended up winning these, you know, other really big victories that are also unheralded. And Richard Sobel was right at the center of all of that in the late 60s and, and, and throughout the 70s. And so I, I think there's something to be learned from that part as well, from sort of the, 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 the after story of the legal side of Deep Delta Justice, which is that as one front on the war against injustice closes, either because you've won enough victories or because the door closes on you culturally, uh, another one opens. And I hope that we can continue to stay alive to those changes because there is a movement happening now that everyone I've talked to involved in this story says is, if anything, more vibrant and more powerful and more widespread than the civil rights movement was in the 1960s. And so I have a lot of hope for where we're at as, as a country right now. And I really hope that we are able to learn from the successes of the past, um, some of which I, I chronicle in this book, and also from the mistakes, because I think this, this moment right now is too important to, to let pass by. Yeah, this book is really, I mean, reading it as a, as a young person, it shows so much what can be done. Um, and also the challenges, but how people have, like Gary Duncan and Richard Sobel, have overcome them, worked through them, and moved on and kept making a difference. Um, so thank you so much again for the interview. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Elliot. Matthew Van Meter is a journalist who focuses on the criminal justice system. He's also the assistant director of Shakespeare in Prison, an organization that uses theater to help incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. Elliot Smith is a junior in high school at Milton Academy in Massachusetts, and he produced this episode. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton, who are a senior and recent graduate of Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Edman. Fernanda Rain is our aunt queen, and we are her drones. Our website is untextbook.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Untextbooked. That's where you'll find more stories from the present and the past that shouldn't be overlooked. We've been working on this series for months. We spent our summer reading and researching and learning all about the world. It took a lot of work behind the scenes, and we need to pay the people that helped it happen. Go to untextbook.com, click support. Untextbook is a project of God History, an organization that believes in a world 
where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.